0: Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have Ashkan Fardost with me. Uh, Welcome to my podcast, Ashkan.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Ashkan is a former musician and holds a PhD degree in organic chemistry and after his music and science career, he got involved in the Stockholm startup scene. He's a scientist, entrepreneur and a global speaker on how technology and digitalization affect industries, societies and also human behavior. I have been thinking about a question for a long time, and I I hope you can also help me to analyze it or perhaps answer it. How is it possible for seven billion people on this planet to all actually want the same thing, uh, such as safety, uh, survival, happiness, peace, joy, love, all of these things that we all want, and still be absolutely unable to produce this? I mean, even after trying for thousands of years. What is it that we actually don't understand? Why cannot an intelligent species like ours produce these, one would say, simple outcomes? What do you think?
1: I think the the biggest obstacle in coming closer to at least understand this is that we have been very, you know, self-centered. As soon as human civilization started to, you know, investigate what are we doing here, what's happening, You know, for thousands of years, we were in the center, you know. We were in the center of the universe. Everything revolved around us and so forth. I think we heightened ourselves to this super godly, almost godly position. And, you know, when you start out with that, It's kind of hard to try to really objectively try to investigate what is the human condition really, you know, and do it in an honest way because we are so sacred and special. Mm -hmm. So it makes it really tough to try to analyze our own flaws. But recently, more and more people have started doing that, you know, especially in the field of psychology, to really try to understand, like, what is the human condition? What the hell is up? Why are we so damn irrational, even though we have some part of the brain knowing what's right, but we still don't do what most people believe is the right thing? Why are we so unpredictable? And so on and so forth. And I think, in general, if you think about it, you know, being human, you know, we have millions of years of biological evolution behind us that has programmed us to avoid death at all costs. That's a biological baggage, you know, we have with us. Priority one, avoid death. Once you can do that, you can go eat, you can go have sex, and so on and so forth. But if you're about to die, that's priority number one. So we're programmed to avoid death. But then we're also, you know, we are conscious beings, and we have such an advanced consciousness that we can actually reflect about the fact that one day in the future, I am going to die. We are the only species on this planet, to the best of our knowledge, that can reflect and be conscious about the fact that we are going to die at the end anyway. And imagine the kind of conflict this has to create inside our brains, because half of the brain, you know, programmed biologically to avoid (laughs) death, but then the new, you know, the frontal lobe of the human brain comes along and wakes up and realizes, holy shit, I'm going to die anyway. So, you know, why do we even get up in the morning? Why do we get up in the morning when we know we are going to die anyway? So I think the brain must have solved this in a sense. Otherwise, nobody would get up. We would just lie down, cry, and forget about everything. But we don't. We get out of bed. We go to work. We do these podcasts. We go to restaurants. We go to the cinema. We do a bunch of things. And I think we can do these things even though we know there is really no bigger meaning. We're going to die anyway. I think we can do this because our brain must have solved this conflict. And I think the brain has solved this. In a brilliant, genius way, I think the brain has solved the conflict of death by telling us to come up with so-called immortality projects in which we try to realize ourselves and thus get the illusion of immortality. So I think what makes us get up in the morning is our inner wish to actually become immortals. But the thing is, you know, we know we can't be biologically immortal, so at least we try to be symbolically immortal. So if you look at it, you know, all the things we humans do, the true essence of it is that we want to leave something behind. We want to be remembered. We want to leave a trace behind us. And that's this immortality that I speak of. It could be, you know, the simple things such as, you know, that humans have been doing for thousands of years to have a family. You know, you have a family, and then you can be remembered in that family for generation after generation. That's one way to become immortal, in a sense, or symbolically immortal. And at the end, maybe you get a nice gravestone, you know, with your name on it, you know, and then you're kind of immortal. But, you know, there are more advanced forms of that, and that's what we call culture, you know. So maybe somebody starts a company. Take Elon Musk, for example. Imagine the kind of immortality projects this person has going on. You know, colonizing Mars, getting rid of the use of fossil fuels, implanting brains with chips to solve problems like Alzheimer's. These are massive immortality projects. If you look at political parties, you know, what they're really offering is different ways to make people feel they are closer to immortality. That's how I see political parties. If you're an entrepreneurial type, you will probably be more attracted to the right-wing parties because they say, we believe in entrepreneurship, we believe in the freedom of the human individual to start and create whatever they want. And if you are the entrepreneurial type, you will more likely be attracted by that kind of vision. Because somewhere deep in your brain, you realize that, oh, I can immortalize myself better with this kind of politics. Whereas if you're somebody who believes in the nation state and this communion between all people and all that stuff, then maybe you are probably attracted by somebody more to the left and so on. Mm -hmm. So I think if you look at everything we humans do, the true essence of it is that we are in one way or another trying to become immortals. And we haven't, you know, this isn't something humans have discussed for a very long time. There has been traces in it, in different types of philosophies. But this kind of thought that, you know, we are really irrational, weird creatures, all of this started with Freud. He was one of the first psychologists who actually challenged the fact that we humans are this, you know, super sacred being that has this center role in the universe, said no, we are animals and we have a body, so everything we do must somehow come from the fact that we are dying, decaying, rotting biological bodies. Awful. It, <laughs> it is awful in a sense. Mm. It is. But you know, that's reality. That's reality. And I think it's crazy. Think
0: what that, that is. That that that's the reality. That that's why because, I mean, from my perspective now, I mean, this is this can touch upon you know philosophy and religion and all kinds of aspects, yeah. these dimensions. But there is absolutely going back to my question. There is absolutely no point in us being here if everything is about just being here and then dying and it all ends there. And 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 the whole life is about becoming immortal in terms of uh, be remembered in some way. I mean everybody wants to, to have a good impact in general, like most of the people at least want to have a good impact uh, during a lifetime because it's more fun that way and also we don't want to hurt anyone. We want exactly. to we want to at least, you know, cooperate and hopefully do something together with other people that is of value. But then, of course, it can be discussed. You know, what really happens after death—is it really that we disappear or <laughs> rot? <laughs>
1: or, yeah, but that—that's a well, question nobody can physi- actually answer. Exactly, you know? physically,
0: yeah. uh, that's the aspect. But um, I'm sure a lot of people uh, have uh, a more, like, say, uh, a bright, uh, you know, interpretation of it.
1: The yeah. fact that there seems to be really no big point to this at all—to me, that is the point, and that mm. is a beautiful point because mm. the only thing that's left then is to play around. Mm. That's the only thing that's left in my opinion. Like that's why I don't care so much about rules and about people saying, "Well, this is the way it's supposed to be." Said who, you know? As as soon as we go mm. beyond physical natural laws, everything beyond that point is made up by human beings. Every system, every structure, mm. every rule, every norm, everything is made up by human beings. So really There is nothing that says you can't do this in one way or another that's why i think the only thing that's left then if there is no point is play so i think we should play more and you know that's if you look at all the startups today that everyone is attracted to you know a huge element of the whole you know recent startup culture Mm -hmm. that's the element of play and being rebellious and say, we don't care about rules. We're going to do it this way because nobody else have done it this way. Mm -hmm. You know, it's play. That's what it's about. That's why people have so much fun working in these types of companies. Because they start from a clean slate, forget all of the rules and structures, and this is the way you should do it, bullshit. And then they just Mm -hmm. do their thing. So to me, it's a really positive thing. Like, forget about all the stuff that people have made up if you think you can do it in a different way. Mm -hmm. Play around. I'm really, you know, glad to have found this insight. I don't see it as a bad thing at all.
0: Yeah, but the only thought where I'm, I'm stuck with this is why do you think that people are not... I mean, you said there's no point. Yeah. Why, why is there no point? What what's, what's, is, according to you, the point with life? Well, I think
1: everyone has the responsibility to come up with their own point. Mm-hmm. Because obviously there is no external point. You know, uh, well, then you could say, well, what about the different religions? Maybe one of them are right. But, you know, those are also immortality projects. You know, how can you compete with the immortality project of being, you know, forever hanging out with God and angels and soft clouds? You know, that's a really hard immortality project to compete with. And that's why people are attracted to religion, I think, because it gives them a sense of immortality. It gives them the sense of bigger meaning and that you are going to live on forever in one shape or another. Mm. But I don't believe there is an external point, which is the basis of your question. Humans have tried to figure out what the point is for thousands of years. It seems we have come nowhere closer to that. And I completely agree with that mm. because, you know, we are part of the system called the universe. I think it's, it's impossible for us to even grasp why we are here. Because we are inherently part of the system. Mm. So I don't see an external point. So instead I say, okay, it's up to each and one of us to come up with our own points. And my point is, most things are made up by human beings. There is no reason you should accept everything human people say, because maybe you have something better to offer. Then you should do that. And the best way to do that is through play. Mm. Or let's call it an adult way of playing, you know? Maybe you start a company, maybe you start an organization, mm. maybe you create a project, whatever that may be.
0: Yeah, exactly, and that part of the attitude, I, I appreciate very much personally the playfulness because it is free from fear, which is typically the, I think, the biggest thief in many, uh, you know, in terms of life quality and professional life quality as well. Uh, everything that is kind of fearful, yeah. fearfully driven uh, leads nowhere. So the playfulness in that sense is um, is a liberation of lots Absolutely. of ideas and energy, of course.
1: Mm. But play is also fun when there is an element of fear in it, you know, when you do something you're not supposed to do, or you're going to jump off of this thing that maybe will break your leg, you don't know, but that's part of the excitement. Mm. So I think fear is not necessarily something bad, but there are bad types of fear and good types of fear, I think. Mm. So, you know the classic corporate kind of fear, like, oh, we can't change this because we've been doing this for 20 years and we might lose money if we change it. Yeah, that's bad fear. Because here we have spent 50 years building up completely arbitrary structures and rules Mm. and nobody questions these rules as if they were natural laws. And then people, you know, become very limited in what they can do, say, and think. Mm. And then they become afraid of trying to change things. Yeah, that's a really bad type of fear.
0: Mm. But uh, today corporations uh, are, you could say, ruling the world. So how how do you foresee the development of corporations? I think to really see the
1: development of corporations, you have to first begin by looking at, you know, how does the human being, the individual, want to realize her or himself? I think we have to start there. Because Mm -hmm. corporations exist because people are willing to work for them. In the medieval era, right, there we had basically, at least in the Western world, we had this caste system, right? Either you were a peasant or you were a merchant or you worked in a guild or you were a part of the, you know, elite and so on. And you were born into your caste. So when you're born, if you happen to be born by a peasant family, into a peasant family, well, that's your role in life, right? So in a sense, that's kind of the opposite of the individual. There was no individuality; you became what you were born into, and that was your role. so in many history books, we read about the medieval era as if everyone was depressed and everyone hated themselves and just wanted to kill themselves. but that's really not the truth because yes, a lot of people had a shitty life, you know materially, but mentally, they still had a bigger sense of belonging, mm-hmm. like this is my role in life, and then there had the religion, and everything made sense so That was at least something that was positive mentally for them but then gradually you know from the medieval era we went through the enlightenment and now we have kind of ended up at the you know peak of individuality we've been striving towards individuality ever since then Mm. and i think we are in the middle of that peak right now especially in a country like sweden like here you are you are born and you can do whatever you want you're a free individual And, you know, the world is yours, you don't belong to anything, nobody can tell you anything, explore for yourself. And the price you have to pay, I think, for becoming that individual is that you lose all of the belonging. You belong to nothing anymore because you are that true essence of the individual. So I think people in our era are really striving, doing whatever they can to feel a sense of belonging, right? Mm -hmm. That's where we have ended right now. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, since the industrial era up until today, still most people had, you know, not a lot of money, not a lot of wealth. So as soon as the industrial era kicked along, you know, a lot of people all of a sudden could become employed. So you had a job to go to, you could make money, you could all of a sudden buy things that used to be expensive, but all of a sudden became cheap because of the factory. So people could start to accumulate wealth. And, you know, in relation to the kind of life people lived before and after the industrial era it made sense to go to the factory work eight to five because then you could make money provide for your family and so on and then the primitive industrial factories gradually evolved into more advanced factories and today we have the corporations you know with offices and so on and people have been just chugging away through this eight to five job where you have a boss telling you what to do and you just follow your instructions. And before that, you probably went to university, got a diploma. So somebody would pay you. But the thing is since the internet, I think people have started questioning like, is this really the meaning of life? Sitting in a cubicle eight to five chugging along, realizing somebody else's dream instead of pursuing something I'm actually passionate about. Because let's be honest, A lot of people, I would say there's a majority of people who are doing this 8 to 5 race for year after year after year. Eventually, they will have, you know, burnout syndrome or they get depressed or they feel like they're not passionate about what they're doing anymore. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think we are built to work in these kinds of environments, you know, sitting 8 to 5 doing the same thing day in, day out. And since the internet, all of a sudden, now you have billions of human brains connected together into this collective consciousness, the internet, where people can get a really good glimpse of how other people are realizing themselves. So, you know, the term FOMO, which I love, fear of missing out. I think there is... Another kind of FOMO, you know, existentialist FOMO, like what's my point in life? Because all of a sudden, you know, before the Internet, you watch TV and you saw superstars and they were kind of like... Godly figures almost like, oh, they are special. I can never become like them anyway. So I'm just going to continue to do this thing I was doing before. But now with the internet, you become much closer to people and you start to see that, oh, wait a minute, this person that I've been following on YouTube was just a regular person two years ago. And now this person has grown and become an international superstar. And you start to realize that, wait a minute, if all of these people are realizing themselves in these cool and passionate ways, Why am I still stuck in the cubicle? And then people all of a sudden raise their expectations. Like, if that person can do it, why can't I do it? And then people start sharing information, how you can build this, how you can program that, how you can set up this kind of company. So all of a sudden, all information becomes accessible to every person connected to the internet. And when information flows, More ideas can be generated and ideas can be realized much faster in a simpler way. Because let's say I don't have the internet and I live in a small town somewhere in the northern parts of Sweden. Chances that I'm going to be able to realize an idea that I have are pretty small. Because the kind of expertise I need might not be in the town I currently live. How can I contact everyone in that town in a second? I can't. Should I pick up a phone book and start calling everyone? But with the internet, it really doesn't matter where you live our brains are still connected. So people can realize things much faster as well. And I think this is gradually starting to result in a huge resistance towards this eight to five, you know, cogwheel listening to your manager doing the same thing day in, day out until you get a pension and you die. People are starting to revolt against this.
0: But in terms of um, behavioral trends, uh, what do you see there?
1: Back to the things we were discussing earlier, you know, people want purpose. If you have grown up in this world in the last, say, well, 30 years, yeah, but definitely for the last 15 or 20 years, if you grew up with the internet in the backbone of your, you know, existence, you're going to look for different kinds of purpose than what many corporations today are offering. You can't hire people... By waiving a paycheck anymore you have to give them a way to feel immortal that they're part of a huge immortality project i think that's what attracts people and you know the archetype entrepreneur what are they good at well entrepreneurs create immortality projects but they're also really good at inviting others to be part of that immortality project that's why we call them you know charismatic that somebody's good at inviting you to your immortality project. Mm. That's why people are willing to work for free for SpaceX or Tesla, you know, because it's such a grand challenge they're trying to tackle. So if you're part of that, you know, you're going to feel probably immortal because you helped change the world. Mm. So, yeah, mm. the most key behavioral trend is that purpose means something completely different today than it did just 30, 20 years ago. Mm. And companies need to start address that.
0: And don't you think that they do that? I mean, a lot of big companies, corporations understand that and and kind of try to tap into it as much as possible.
1: I think they talk about it much more than they are actually doing it. They have all rebranded themselves and call themselves digital and they call themselves, you know, future-oriented and all these fancy stuff. But, you know, I think it's a problem of leadership. There is still this culture that... The leader is supposed to micromanage people. You still have that. If you ask most people who work at these big traditional firms, I'm not going to name any names, but the problem is leadership. People are afraid of letting go. They want to control everything. Whereas my question is, why do you hire people to solve something for you if you think you need to manage them? then you can try to solve it yourself. Why did you even hire them in the first place? You know? So I think that's something that needs to change. People need to start letting go. Trust in the people you have hired. Stop managing them. Stop telling them how much vacation they can have. Stop telling them which time they have to show up at the office. Stop telling them for how long they have to stay at the office. Just give them the goal and the purpose and make sure that they are working for you because they want to fulfill that purpose as well. Then let them do what they're good at, and most things will actually sort themselves out by themselves. I think.
0: Mm. No, I totally agree, and there are lots of you know surveys around uh, the world, wherever that's measurable, that says like only fifteen to twenty percent of people are really engaged at work. There is also a big need for some kind of sense of safety in the midst of this playfulness, in the midst of this you know new scenarios that are created and new solutions that are created. you think
1: so? There are two components to that. One is that we have taken for granted that safety is good but then we should also discuss like what kind of safety are we discussing here. You know are you supposed to feel that everything will sort it out by itself You just have to get that diploma at the university and everything will sort itself out and you're guaranteed income for the rest of your life. I don't know if that kind of safety is good. Then, of course, there are other kinds of safety. You know, should you have access to medical health care, school and stuff, which I think you should in a modern society. But that's a different political question. But, you know, the, the safety risk, the founders take that risk. That's what the founders do. They put in their own money or they probably raise money somewhere else. They put in all the risk of that safety part. When you start working for a company like that, I assume that you're going to be paid a salary. Maybe not the same salary as if you had worked at a corporate giant, but still. So I don't see this safety thing being an obstacle here. At least not in a country like Sweden, for example, or most countries in the Western world. Mm. Or do you mean this...
0: No, they were more mentioning it uh, from the point of view of some kind of predictability that uh, not everything... That, so the, the risk level is not at, at always at on top. They can feel that they know they are part of a purpose, they're part of a great company, but that they also know that it's going to be there for a while. So they don't have to kind of remake their life every 12 months or so in case project X or Y doesn't work out.
1: I see what you're saying. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Well, that, I mean, I think the people who are drawn towards the startup world, uh, I think they have already made that, you know, they have weighed that decision already. Like, am I willing to take this risk? Obviously, yes, because that's why they are working there. Mm. But then again, if you look at big corporations, I mean, they are taking a bigger risk by keep doing what they've been doing the last 50 years instead of actually, you know, killing a lot of the structures and starting anew. I think the biggest risk is just keep doing what you've been doing. And I don't see why it would, you know, threaten the safety of the employees or at least the economical safety of the employees. You're threatening it, but you are threatening it by doing the same thing you've been doing. Mm. To me, that's much riskier than actually taking the risk of doing something different. Mm. So I don't buy that argument from that camp either.
0: Mm. But when you have um, these uh, lectures... And in front of you, you have hundreds of people from companies and government agencies and elsewhere. And they're there. And what you offer them is, which I read on your website, to have this new vision for the future and also to understand how their specific, maybe, industry will be affected in the next uh, one or two decades. What is it that you, as an example would tell them that will shake their grounds? Or or what kind of findings do you typically give them uh, as an instrument in a way to, to also maybe transform their businesses and the way they work and think?
1: Some people have labeled me as a futurist. The thing is, though, I don't talk about the future, even though people pay me to do it, but I don't talk about the future. I really talk about the last 20 years, which for most people feels like the future, because I had the luck the extreme luck of growing up in a place outside of Stockholm called Shista. I grew up there. We moved there when I was nine. This was in 1994. The same year I got my first PC And we happened to have a friend that worked with this thing called the Internet. So we got a modem in 1995. So at the age of 10, I had a PC. It was my own. And I had access to the Internet with no censorship, no adult control over it, nothing. Because nobody knew what the Internet was. They thought it was a computer program. So I had the luck to live the life that everyone born today will live. But I did that 20 years ago. So I had the luck to basically peek in to the future and live the future before it got deployed to the masses. So I'm really just boiling down that whole experience. Like, how did that change me as a human being? How did that make me feel in relation to all the other people around me that hadn't discovered it yet? Because there I was with access to, you know, exponentially more information than most people around me. I had a huge information advantage over 99% of the people that I interacted with Mm. for a decade before people started installing internet. And most people use the internet as a tool, like, oh, I'm using this for banking. They don't understand that this is a library of everything the human mind has produced. So basically, it's that experience that I use and boil down into my lectures to try to describe, because it all boils boils down to people. Mm. It doesn't matter if you work in, in the car industry or in retail. Yes, the trends are different for those industries, consumer behaviors are different in those industries, depending on which layer you're looking at it from. But in the end, it's all about people. How can you attract people that will make and keep your company modern? That's the biggest and most important challenge. How do you attract the right people? And if you look at somebody who is a 10-year-old today, in 10 or 15 years from now, these 10-year-olds of today, in 10 or 15 years from now, they are going to be the new consumers, they are going to be the new workforce, they are going to be the talents that every company wants to hire, So, and th- they are going to be the new entrepreneurs. And they grow up with internet in their backbone. How will these people view the world? How will they interact with the world? And what kind of purpose are they looking for in this world? And I think if you understand that, you have taken the first and most important step in understanding how you should transform your company. Mm. But then, you know, the details differ from industry to industry, Mm. of course. Mm. But that's what I focus on. I focus on the human being. Mm. And I try to figure out the human condition and put it in relation to the internet and digital technologies.
0: Mm. But how do you do, I mean, it's it's such a vast uh, area we're talking about. How do you research that? How do you know more and more about this?
1: I read a lot of books, and most books I read are really psychology books and philosophy books and history books because, yeah, it's very cliche, but if you want to understand the future, you have to understand the past. Mm. And, you know, history. if you want to understand history, you have to understand the human condition because, obviously, the fact that we are humans is the fact that we have history, you know. You can't write a history book about dogs like the history of how dogs viewed the world in the 18th century, they viewed the world the same for thousands of years. That doesn't change for them because they are not aware that they are conscious beings that are facing death at the end of the tunnel. So they have no incentive to try to change their fate because for them, everything is Zen. Everything makes sense for a dog, for a pig, for a horse. But we humans, we know that we are facing death at the end of the line. So, all of a sudden, we have an incentive to try to change that fate. And I think that, that's what creates creativity, which in turn creates culture, which in turn creates history. So, I study a lot of history, philosophy, and psychology, and then I try to link that to current trends that we are seeing. How are people behaving online? Why do people take selfies? Why do people purchase this kind of product in this way? Why do they purchase that kind of product in that way? How come people buy more of this than that compared to 10 years ago and so on? Mm. So I try to link that. Mm. So that's the kind of research I do.
0: What would you say is your passion, You know, really something that you are willing to sacrifice things and time and effort for?
1: My real passion, I've discovered this in the last years really, is I want to just understand what it means to be human. Because I don't think we talk about it not even nearly as much as we should. We just assume that, well, here I am and this is what I'm supposed to do. But, you know, no, mm. what you're supposed to do is something, probably something somebody else made up and you just bought and accepted. Why did you accept that? On whose authority have you accepted that this is the way you're supposed to live your life? Mm. I think that's a really simple but also huge question. Mm. And we take so many things for granted. We just assume that things are the way they are because they are supposed to be so. So my passion right now is, and it has been for the last years, to try to understand the human condition and try to contribute something to that. Maybe we'll take the shape of a book, maybe articles, I don't know but hopefully through the lectures that I'm doing. Mm. That and also going to space. I hope I can go to space before I die.
0: Mm. (laughs) That's wonderful. I'd like to do that too.
1: Going to space? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I think we will be able to do it within our lifetime. Mm. I don't think it's that impossible really. The Richard Branson project. (laughs) Branson project, Elon Musk and his SpaceX, Mm. sure.
0: But what would you define as your, let's call it transformational points in your life so far that have, you know, influenced you the most? The first one
1: was when I was a musician and I created, mu- and I couldn't afford a studio because uh, we were, you know, regular middle class family, we had a really good life. But buying a studio, which you needed to do if you wanted to create a music in the 90s, uh, it was a really expensive affair, you know. It was uh, tens of thousands of euros or US dollars to buy a studio. That was money we didn't have. Uh, but that was exactly when some companies started creating computer software that emulated the studio. Uh, and I got hooked to this computer program called Reason, developed by a Swedish company called Propellerhead. It was basically a digital version of the music studio that fit in your computer screen. So for a couple of hundred bucks, you could actually have a full music studio on your computer screen. So. That was the first time I really started realizing that, oh my God, mm. this computer thing, it's not some office tool. This thing can really you know turn things upside down. Mm. Look at me, I'm 13 years old, and I'm sitting here doing music on my computer, and it sounds just as good as the stuff you hear on the radio. Mm. That was huge. So I started creating music, and then I sent my music to a bunch of record labels because I wanted to get signed. Mm. I wanted to be a professional artist. But that didn't work out well because apparently people didn't like my music, the people in power, the people in the music industry. But this was also the same time Napster came out. So all of a sudden, anyone with an internet connection and a computer became technically a music distributor. Because when you were sitting there with Napster, sharing, downloading, uploading music, you were technically a music distributor. You were distributing the music that the record industry tried to make money on. So I was sitting there, and I was looking at all the music people were downloading from me, and I realized that, wait a minute, this is a huge shift in the power distribution in mm-hmm. the music industry. Mm-hmm. First of all, I have the power to distribute music. Second of all, I know what kind of music people are listening to right now. I have that information. Just by looking at what people are downloading from me every day, I have a live trend report of what kind of music is trending, much faster than what the radio stations have access to. So I thought, okay, I know what kind of music people are downloading. I know what kind of music they want. I know exactly which artist they will download from my computer. So what I did was I started putting my own songs into other famous artists' albums. And then I changed the titles and, you know, Photoshopped the album covers so it looked like I was supposed to be on the CD so nobody would get <laughs> suspicious. So some poor... Sucker came and downloaded, you know, DJ Tiesto's latest album and they got two songs by me while they were at it. And then the next person came and downloaded this infected copy and so on. So it went viral without people even noticing. But eventually people started noticing, like, these songs aren't supposed to be here. Who is this guy? Like, what's up with this? What has happened? Who infected the CD? So all of a sudden people started discussing this in the forums and I became someone. People started talking about me. And at this point I'm 16, Mm. living at home with mom and dad. I have a computer and internet connection, and all of a sudden people are talking about me. And these discussions, you know, basically led to my first fan base. A small group of people who really liked my music, and then they helped me. They pitched my music to record companies because they had contacts. I had no contacts. And eventually I got a record deal with one of the biggest companies in electronic music. Mm. And at this time I was 17 years old. Mm. I had no money, no connections in the music industry. All I had was a computer and the internet. And I have flipped the entire equation of how you become a signed music producer. Mm. And that's the moment I realized that, wait a minute, this internet thing, just by you know, shaking the power structure mm. within a segment, look at how much possibility it creates. Mm. Look at all these people around the world now that have the same potential as only a few people in the elite mm. could do, create music and distribute it. Mm. So that's when I realized that this is probably going to affect everything not just the music industry. So ever since then I've been, you know, obsessed with how the internet and digital technologies radically is transforming our world. So I think that was the biggest, you know, aha moment for me really.
0: I was going to ask you about, you know, the long-term solutions for businesses and corporations that you believe in and my own reflection is that if companies can be more part of society in a different way, can replace this, our need, uh, inherent need of belonging to something. Let's call it a bigger kind of sense of tribe. So if you're happy with your work and and you feel, as you say, purposeful there, that can be your tribe and you can do great things together.
1: Absolutely. Mm. Definitely. But I think we also need religion here because we are a religious species. Like we've, we've been driven by mythology. As long back as we can go, people have gathered around mythology. Mm. And when I say religion and mythology, I'm not talking about, you know, traditional religion per se. Yeah. Uh, I myself consider myself, well, not an atheist because I can't prove there is no God and I really don't know. So, but I'm somewhere around there, you know. I'm not a religious person. I don't belong to a religious organization. I don't believe in any of that. Mm. But I believe we need some kind of religion. So we need some sort of mythology we can attach to. And you said a really interesting thing. You said startup culture has become like a religion. And yes, I agree with you. You know, Like this is the way things are supposed to be. That's what a lot of people in the startup world, that's a sentiment they have. Mm. It's almost becoming its own mythology. Or just take technology in general. There are a lot of tech fanatics around the world. In fact, did you know there's an organization called The Way of the Future? Created by a guy, I think his name is Anthony Lewandowski. He's one of the key figures of self-driving car technology. So technically, really smart person. No doubt about that. A million times smarter than I, what I will ever be. So he used to work for Google self-driving car project, but then mm-hmm. he moved over to Uber and he stole research from there. So he's in court now. So there are a lot of stories about him. He created an organization called Way of the Future, mm-hmm. where the goal is that they believe that eventually, humankind will be able to build an artificial intelligence that's going to be much smarter than human beings, and thus much wiser than human beings, and that AI will become the new god. So, this organization's goal is to create that AI as soon as possible, so that we can finally have this wise artificial intelligent god, so we can all bow to it, or him, or her, or whatever.
0: Gosh, that sounds creepy.
1: It is creepy. Yeah, it is creepy in a way, because, um, yeah, I mean, none of them can answer the question, you know, what makes you think an AI can become creative in the first place and start thinking like a human? There are really no good answers to that. Mm. So there are a lot of holes in that theory. Mm. But yes, people have become fanatic about tech as well. Mm. And to me, that is, you know, it's religious to believe there will be an AI that's going to be wiser than us that's going to solve all of our problems. Mm. To me, yes, that's, you know, it's really no big difference to that and the traditional gods we're used to. So, yes, we are all searching for this, you know, godly figure that can cover up this empty hole in our souls. Mm. And I think we need that, but we need it in a constructive way. Mm. And yes, if startup culture is your religion, you know, and you're not harming anyone, go for it. Like, I'm really happy for a lot of the services and products that have come out of startup culture. Mm. But yes, we need that kind of bigger belonging too. I don't think the company isn't, I don't think it's enough.
0: Mm.
1: We need the spiritual connection as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I've, uh, I can't remember who told me many years ago something like, um, so if you would like to hide something from the human being, Where would you hide it to make sure that they will never find it? And the answer to that question was, you will hide it where they will never look, which is inside ourselves. Mm -hmm. Because we are always typically looking outside of ourselves for, you know, the answers for insights for realizations and so on, and seldom looking inside.
1: Yeah. And, yeah.
0: and whatever you want to call that inside. I guess one of our problems is really that we don't look there too much for some answers. We, we tend to be very extrovert and just uh, that's why also maybe we have this need, this huge need for, for this tribe or belonging, because we tend to feel lonely if we're not part of that. And we get busy when we are part of something, whether it's a job or a big family or big life projects, whatever it is. It's great, but the feeling of loneliness comes from the inside that we are not in touch with.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, we're constructed to work in groups. And, like, we are evolved to be part of a mythology, in a sense. So, yeah, I think that is as necessary as food, water, and sex, and all these other basic needs. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need the story. Which story are you a part of? And I think we all need to find that. Mm. And I hope we find a creative, constructive one and not a destructive one. Mm. But regardless, we will search for it. Problem is though, like, especially with Western culture, uh, we are very secularized, right? It's a very secular culture. But secular doesn't mean, according to me, that you are free from a god. To me, secular means you're free from organized religion, but you still need that God. And the price we have paid for being secular is that we have lost that sense of spirituality. And you know, and but the thing is, when we s- say spirituality, usually some people start immediately thinking about like New Age stuff, yeah, putting yeah, on yeah, colorful sure. clothes, and you know, mm. uh, screaming out chants and dancing to rain. Like, it doesn't have to be that either, if you're uncomfortable with that that stuff or don't like it. Like, me, myself particularly, I don't like any kind of organized religion. I don't care about them, as long as they don't bother me or my society, but I don't personally have any interest of being part of them. But I still want a story in my head, even though if it's not true. And I guess the story I have convinced myself of is probably not true, but at least it drives me to do things. And there are other peoples who share this story with me, and together we can unite through that. Mm. And that gives me a huge sense of belonging. Mm. And I think everyone needs it. If you don't feel you have it, you should start looking for that. Mm. Because otherwise you're going to get depressed eventually. Mm.
0: Mm. And when you say your story, you're thinking about this immortality story that you told before. And the reason we... No, no. the immortality part, that's that's a way of... And I didn't even
1: invent the immortality theory. Like, this is a continuation of uh, Freud's uh, psychoanalytical theories. I think um, Otto Rank, I guess, and Norman Brown are the biggest contributors uh, to the foundation of that theory. And then you have Ernest Becker, uh, who really crystallized it and really kind of coined the term Immortality Project. But that's really a way for me to look at the human condition from an objective point of view. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, it's not my story. It's just a way to understand my mechanism. Like, okay, I want to be immortal. That's what drives me. And then, depending on my genes and the kind of psyche I'm born with, I guess I want to realize that immortality in a way that's probably different from other people. You know, some people are really content with, you know, yeah, I'm gonna have a family and just have this job and they're super happy doing that and like awesome just keep doing that You know mm. great Whereas I'm like no I have to contribute to this. I have to write a book and all that stuff Maybe because I'm probably more narcissistic than other people I guess But I try to channel that into something that empowers others mm. But that's a way to just look at myself objectively or look at human beings objectively mm. but the story Now I'm talking about the mythological stuff. And the story that I've invented for myself is that we are explorers. And as long as we explore everything, we are going to be happy. So that's why I'm obsessed with space travel. And I love science fiction. And I think if we just colonize space, you know, we have to do these things. That's the thing that keeps me going spiritually. Like, how can we become one with the universe and understand it? Well, we have to explore it. We can't just be stuck on earth
0: Mm. or maybe we already are part of the universe it's just that we don't understand we are
1: we are but like (laughs) i
0: mean in in not not in a physical sense but Mm. also in a a maybe a spiritual sense
1: yeah yeah i'm sure we are i mean we are of the universe we are created of stardust right so let's try to feel the other parts of it as well Mm. so that's the story that's kept me going for as long as i can remember space travel and exploring the cosmos because that's i think something that unites everyone regardless of the organized religion you go to or whatever country you happen to be from and so on mm-hmm.
0: but if you would assume that you have you know all doors kind of open and you have all resources available what would you then innovate or change
1: i would put all of my efforts in making sure everyone on this planet have access to the best possible education whatever education of their choosing might be.
0: Education, as you said before, you know, what is it? Is it to have, everybody should have eventually some kind of university degree to, to buy themselves a kind of a passport for some kind of safe, good route in life? Or is education something that we should organize differently in a totally different system? And what could it be?
1: Yes, I think especially in this era when we have the internet and we have access to all of the information that all universities are providing, I think the information in itself isn't the value, but the value is what can you do with that information. Exactly. So instead of just you know giving people knowledge, I think the best form of education you can provide is to teach children and the youth and adults the art of teaching yourself. Because then, you know, you don't have to worry anymore. People can figure out things as they go. Mm. So, yes, the art of teaching yourself and also the art of how to realize an idea. How can you dream up an idea and actually make it real? And the only way and the best way to realize an idea is to do it with other people. So then the, the next thing is, how can you be effective in a team of people how can you understand people be empathetic listen be a good listener being good at giving feedback etc so i think these are the components for modern education if Mm. i was tasked with rebuilding it Mm. the art of teaching yourself and the art of realizing ideas and to do that you need to be able to work in a group Mm. so then we come to the art of working in a group with other people
0: But if you could give one piece of advice to leaders, however you choose to define those leaders, what would it be? If you can
1: trust the people you are leading, then either you have hired the wrong people or it means you can't trust yourself. So you shouldn't be a leader in the first place.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that is critical for every person in a leadership position to accept and realize and act upon immediately if they believe if they really want the best for their company. Way too many people are leaders who shouldn't be leaders today.
0: And what is a leader tomorrow? Who is that? Do we need leaders in that sense?
1: I think so. I think you need the leader because the leader is the person who makes sure everyone in the group has what they need to Mm -hmm. excel and feel comfortable and excel and feel part of the group. That's one part of leadership. The other part is I think the leader is responsible for the story and the vision, to maintain the vision. When times are bad, to try to tell that story you know, over and over again and remind people why we are doing this in the first place. Mm. So you know, you're chief of vision and you're chief of making sure everyone in the group has the best possibilities to mm. excel optimally. Mm. Then you should just step away and let people do their magic. Mm.
0: Exactly. Leave space. Yes. If you were to uh, give advice to yourself, let's say 10, 15 years ago, what would it be?
1: Read much more history. Just read history. Mm. Read history and psychology because, you know, that's the best way. If you want to understand what's happening right now and where we're headed, Mm. I think those are the most important things to do for everyone. Mm. But, um, you know, unfortunately, history in school has been, you know, this series of events. Like, then this happened, then this country came and did this, then this was invented. Whereas I think you should teach history as, you should blend history, philosophy, and psychology together. They are really different aspects of the same thing. Mm. They shouldn't be separate subjects.
0: Mm. And also, when I see, for example, my son over the years studying history, you know, by the time they reach today, they're so fed up with it you know yes uh, they it's like why do i have to know all these things yeah. about the middle age or whatever so as you say blend it or start from now and go backwards or do it I like in a that. different start way start from like, now
1: and go backwards i mm-hmm. love that mm-hmm. but like yeah for example like if you teach history with the goal of like okay you're learning history to understand yourself mm-hmm. i think that's a good start you're not reading history so you can you know recount what happened in the past that's not the point of history. The point of history is to understand why we are feeling the way we are feeling right now as individuals and as large masses of people, whether you want to divide it into a country basis or a company basis or whatever.
0: What do you think is the most important thing for companies to focus on right now?
1: Well, two things. Uh, back to people, like you have to understand, people who are growing up today have a completely different view of what purposes, they're going to have a completely different predicament of how they want to realize themselves. That's Mm. key. And also leadership. Why are the leaders in your company leaders? What qualifies them as being leaders? Are they making sure the vision is followed? Are they making sure that the vision penetrates everything in the team? And are they sure they are creating the optimum conditions for the people they have hired to solve problems Mm. so they can excel? Mm. Are they doing that and then stepping away or are they micromanaging people? Mm. Start there and you will have a really good head start, I Mm. believe.
0: Mm. Have you ever thought about working for a company yourself? Would that be even on your map?
1: No, I will probably not ever do it. Probably. I'm saying probably. (laughs) If Elon Musk would call me and say he needs my expertise in organic (laughs) chemistry, yes, I will consider. Actually, I would run. (laughs) I would run to that company, yes. Mm. But, yeah, there are a few other ventures I can imagine working at. But, I mean, not because, I mean, there are a lot of companies whose purpose and vision I really love. I really, really love. The problem is I can't concentrate on a specific problem for more than, like, one year. Mm. And then I get bored of it, and then I have to do something else. Mm. And I think that's damaging for the company. Mm -hmm. So I don't even want to put them through that. (laughs) So that's really the real reason. And I'm happy the way I'm doing things right now.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So for now, no, I can't imagine working for a company at the moment. Mm
0: -hmm. And so if you would talk to uh, Mr. Musk now, and he says, give me an idea of the next project, the next thing we need to develop, what do you think? What would you say?
1: I would want to launch Hyperloops in Sweden. That's what I would want to do. To make sure that, you know, regardless where in Sweden you live, you're at tops 30 minutes away from every other citizen. Mm. Because, you know, the internet brings everyone closer mentally, up here in the mind. But I think we need that physical closeness as well. Mm. There are some projects I know you can do without ever meeting physically. But I think that physical meeting, there's some magic to it. That you can't mm. replace mm. so i would just want to launch hyperloop connections between every city in sweden
0: mm. how do you define hyperloops for those that don't oh so hyperloop
1: it's an idea conceived by elon musk and colleagues at spacex and tesla and the, in 2012 they published a 60 page long document describing the whole idea so the idea is that you have these large tubes and these tubes connect cities. Okay? And in these tubes, you have almost vacuum, so really low air pressure. And then you have these pods, like train wagons, kind of, futuristic train wagons. And you have people sitting in them, and then you can launch these pods in these tubes. And because the air pressure is so low, mm. you have almost no air resistance. So you can get really high speeds with relatively low energy input. So you can run most of it with solar power in some parts of the world, at least. But of course, the thing with the Hyperloop is it's extremely, extremely fast. Mm. For example, I could go from Stockholm to Berlin in 45 minutes. Mm. And it's completely agnostic to weather. It doesn't matter if it's snowing or raining, whatever, because you're inside that tube anyway. So that's the idea of the Hyperloop. And in 2012, they published a 60-page document describing the whole thing, and Elon Musk came out and said, you know, here's the idea. I'm too busy with colonizing space and building electric cars, so I don't have time to build this thing. So here's the idea, please can somebody build it. And then a lot of companies started popping up doing that. Mm-hmm. The one in the forefront right now is called Hyperloop 1, recently purchased by Virgin, so now it's called Virgin Hyperloop 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are they have built a test track in Nevada. And they are planning on, you know, starting to connect cities. But there are a lot of innovations left until they realize their full potential. I think the current speed they have reached is 240 miles per hour. Uh, That speed has to go up before it becomes feasible. And they haven't started even tackling the economics of it yet, Uh, but I'm sure that will be solved. And Elon Musk now started his own company called The Boring Company, because they're boring, ap- the boring company, <laughs> because apparently he couldn't keep his fingers away from this idea. So he's in the game as well now. And his approach is to dig tunnels underground instead and have these tubes underground with the boring company. Uh, so and he has solved much more difficult challenges before. So I'm very hopeful and optimistic that this is going to work. And current developments have shown that they are really on the right path. Mm. And I think that would drastically change the way we see the world. Mm. Like if I can go from Sweden to Germany in 40 minutes mm. without leaving the ground.
0: You can work there and live in Sweden or exactly, you want.
1: Exactly. It's going to give me a completely different concept of nation. Mm. Everything is just going to be suburbs to each other all of a sudden. Mm. And I think the world would be better off that way.
0: Integrated for real.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Mm. And uh, what do you think the world needs most at this time if we elevate one step? I think the world needs, I don't know, (laughs) I
1: don't know, (laughs) I don't know, who am I to say what the world needs? I think at least every human being should try to analyze themselves and realize that, you know, if you feel you have figured everything out, that's probably really good evidence that you haven't figured anything out at all, which is kind of paradoxical of me to say that because it sounds like I figured it out, but I haven't. I'm completely lost. I have no idea about anything, but at least I'm, I've learned to be comfortable with that. Mm. And it has helped me to listen to other people that I didn't li- listen to before because mm. we had so different opinions and views. Mm. They haven't changed my views maybe so I've become like everyone else, but at least it gives me perspective. Mm. But I don't know what the world needs. Like Find your passion and do something that makes you happy and makes other people happy. We could go a long way with just that.
0: Mm. Okay, Ashken, thank you so much. How Tell me, how was it to be on the podcast?
1: This is the most original podcast setting I've been in. Uh, for the listeners, we're sitting in a meditation room and we're <laughs> sitting on the floor on a <laughs> carpet chair kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so it's really, really relaxed. And I really like the fact that you know, yes, it's called Corporate Unplugged, and we're going to help companies grow and become better. But we could talk about human beings and still tackle what it's about being a company. So mm. I really like that. Mm. Yeah, it was a really fun conversation to have with you. Mm. So thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you very much, Ashkan. And to find out more about Ashkan and his work, you can head to his website, ashkan.io. It's spelled A-S-H-K-A-N dot I-O. And he's also on Twitter and Facebook and under the name of Tourist in Space. I truly appreciate if you share this episode with your network and friends for impact. And thank you so much for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. Bye.